Good morning, Chapel Hill. It is good to see you. Welcome to Baptism Sunday. Uh, as we have been telling you, today is Baptism Day, in case you hadn't guessed. I'm the dipper. We're looking for dippies. So uh, uh, later on, I'll just, I want to just put it right now in front of you. Of course, most of you have been baptized. Most of you have professed your faith. But our prayer every Sunday is there might be some here who have not yet discovered the joy of Christ in their life, who have not yet discovered the salvation that is ours, who do not yet know the wonderful opportunity they have to be a part of God's family, who have not yet been baptized. And so if that's you, even now I want you to begin to think about it. Let that stir in your heart. And those around you, my beloved brothers and sisters, I I want you to pray that God would stir the hearts. Because following my message, we're going to, I'm going to be ready, and we'll go in there, and if, if you're ready, I'm, I'm ready. And if you're not ready for that, we got this. We're your full-service baptizers, so <laughs> either way, if you're not dressed, eh, we got it. We got it covered, so... Uh, my name is Mark Toon. I'm the senior pastor here. We've been on, on vacation for a few weeks, and uh, Cindy and I had a wonderful, restful time. It is always good, though, to be back with you. We, um, we actually stayed home quite a bit, although we, we did take on something new this summer. We took up cycling, or bicycling, or biking. I, can't, I found out who, what's the proper term. They, all the, my experts disagree. May I just tell you this? Gig Harbor is a horrible place to take up bicycling in. <laughs> I've never seen a place where it's uphill in both directions. But Gig Harbor, it is uphill no matter where you go. The good news is it's a great workout. As a matter of fact, later on in the service when I stripped down to my shorts to go in there, you might want to avert your gaze because these finely sculpted quads would be a distraction for you, I'm sure. (laughs) I want you to imagine something with me uh, this morning. Imagine this. Imagine a wealthy man... In the final days of his life, he has a large family, and one of his sons slips into the hospice room, and he walks over to the bed and leans down, and he says, Dad, I know that you're failing, but before you go, I have a document here for you. I wonder if you would be willing to sign this revision to your will. Here's the pen. Let me put it in your hand. Let me help you fill that out. How would you feel about a child like that? This evening, this morning, we, we're, we're going to turn to uh, one of the most embarrassing uh, passages, one of the most embarrassing stories in the Gospel of Mark, because it portrays two of Jesus' key disciples in such self-serving terms, the worst possible light. And it turns out that the other ten don't come out smelling like a rose either. Here's the context. They're on the road. They are in the final days before Jesus is going to go, uh, go to the cross. And so Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what lies ahead. And here are his exact words. We are going up to Jerusalem, he says, and I will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn me to death and deliver me over to the Gentiles, and they will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. That's pretty clear, wouldn't you agree? And can you imagine hearing such a thing from a beloved mentor? Remember, these are his closest friends. These are the guys who have spent the last three years, nearly every waking day with him. And you would think, you would hope that they would respond with something like, Oh, Jesus, Lord, that is awful. That's just horrific. What can we do to support you, to be with you, to stand with you in this time? That's what you'd hope to hear, isn't it? 
Instead, you are about to hear two of Jesus' closest friends at their sleaziest. This is the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Mark chapter 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking of me. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said, We are able. And he said to them, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the other ten disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard your kids say something like this? Hey, Daddy, I want you to make a promise to me. I want you to promise to do do something for me. And you say, okay, what is it? He said, no, 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 I want you to promise before I ask. You've all had it happen, right? It was my daughter who typically was pulling that one on me. Promise before I tell you. That's exactly what just happened in this passage. James and John, along with Peter, were the inner three, right? They were were Jesus' closest friends. He often invited them into the most intimate of of settings to share and to grow and to be taught. It was James, John, and Peter who were invited into the healing room of Jairus' daughter. It was James, John, and Peter who joined Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it was they who will end up joining Jesus in his most agonized moments in the Garden of Gethsemane. So perhaps because of all of that, they felt special. They felt like they were kind of a cut above the rest. And so now they pull Jesus aside and say, Hey, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. We want you to promise to do for us what we ask of you. Promise first before we tell you what it is. It is so breathtakingly audacious and awful, isn't it? Remember what Jesus just told them. The passage I just read just before this. He has just told them what awaits him in only days from now. He has just told them the horror that what will will befall him. Now, to be fair, he also includes in there talk of the resurrection. Three times, in fact, in Mark's gospel, he speaks about the suffering he will endure, the cross, death, but his resurrection. And you've got to give James and John credit here. They at least believe the resurrection part. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They do believe that God is going to raise him up somehow into power, into glory. What they happen to skip over in that request, though, is that horrifying part in between of his arrest, his betrayal, his, his, his torture, his murder. They just kind of jump over that little detail. What they seem to realize is that every step Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem brings us that much closer to his death. And so they need to act now if they're going to get what they want. It is so self-serving because what they want is power. 
After Jesus gets past that pesky crucifixion, once God has enthroned him as king, they want dibs on the VIP spots. You realize what they're doing? They're calling shotgun on Jesus' front seat. Unfortunately, there were only two seats of honor, which means, of course, that all the other guys are going to be cut out of the deal, including Peter, the third guy in the circle. But the word gets out, off its politics being as they are, and the rest of them get ticked off. You would hope that they were ticked off because of the sheer audacity, the insensitivity of what they're asking of Jesus. But no. It seems that the disciples are ticked off at the Zebedee boys because they beat them to the punch. Intrigue and secrecy, manipulation and power. This is a first century version of a literal game of thrones. Isn't it? This is the first game of thrones. Jesus answers them. So you want to share in my glory, do you? Are you ready to share in my cup? Drink the cup that I drink? Are you ready to share in my baptism, the baptism of suffering, of indignity, of torture, of death? Are you ready to share in that? Oh, yeah, 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 we're ready, Jesus. (laughs) And you can almost see him shaking his head and taking a deep sigh. He is so close to turning over his work to these knuckleheads, and they still don't get it, do they? They still think that his kingdom is about power and dominion and authority and political brinksmanship. So one more time, Jesus pulls all 12 of them together, and he delivers what I think is the center, the most important speech that he gives in the Gospel of Mark. Here it is. Here's the rest of that passage. Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Not so with you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is one of the most countercultural things that Jesus ever taught. And literally, it is countercultural. Because the culture of Rome was the culture of power and domination. The higher on the food chain you were, the more power you had. And if you couldn't be very high on the food chain, the next best thing was to be near to the people who were high on the food chain. That is the way that the realm of Emperor Tiberius worked. And James and John wrongly assumed that that is the way that the realm of Jesus worked also. Different king, different throne, same game. But Jesus sets them straight, and he does it with four words. Did you see the words? What were they? Not so with you. Say it out loud. Essentially what he is saying is, all you've ever known up to now is power politics. All you've ever known is survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog. The big guy beating down the little guy. Well, not in my house. Not in my kingdom. Not so with you. If you want to be... Great in my kingdom, Jesus says, then you must be a servant. If you want to be first, you need to learn to be last. And then comes the sublime anchor point 
the centerpiece of Mark's gospel. We read these words only in the gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is hard for us to imagine how truly radical this teaching would have been in that time because this was a time when human beings owned other human beings. In fact, the minority of human, minority of humanity owned the majority of humanity in the Roman Empire. There were some human beings that were valuable and there were way more human beings that were less than valuable. And Jesus is saying in this, we are all radically equal in my kingdom. Remember, this is the guy who in few days is going to be washing his own disciples' feet. The washing of the feet was reserved for the lowest slave on the totem pole. And what Jesus is saying in this moment and in that act is, there is no totem pole in my kingdom. For those of you who know me, it would be no surprise to hear I'm a pretty big Cindy Toon fan. I know that's a shocker to you, but in addition to being an incredible wife, an incredible mom and friend, I think that she brings honor to her role as the wife of the senior pastor of this church. And so I'm going to brag on her. At one time, Cindy was volunteering in the, the youth ministry. And at the end of one particular event, the place was just trashed. The diner had been absolutely trashed. It was just shambles. And I know that's a surprise to you to discover that youth ministry is messy. May God always bring that kind of mess to this church, by the way. May we always be messy. So Cindy tracks down a custodial closet and takes out a mop, and she starts mopping the floor. In walks one of our great custodians, and he says to Cindy, You can't do that. You are the first lady of the church. In other words, what he was saying is, Mopping floors is beneath your station. And what Cindy was saying is, there are no stations in Christ's kingdom, right? The person who mops the floors is just as valuable, just as essential as the person who happens to be married to the preacher. I've shared this story before, but it bears sharing again in this, in this context. Tory Wickman, many of you remember Tory. He was an accomplished, educated, urbane member of this congregation who also happened to be retired. And so when I heard that he had applied for our part-time receptionist position, I was kind of shocked. In fact, I took Tori out to lunch and I said, Brother, Tori, you are overqualified for this position. And I'll never forget his words as we were sitting there in that end booth in Hunan Gardens. That's how emblazoned this is in my mind. Tori's response was, there is no job beneath a servant of the Lord. And I remember in that moment feeling very ashamed of myself because my very question had bought into the world's view that some roles, some people are more important than others. That was my Zebedee moment. And, G- and Jesus was just shaking his head, I'm sure. And so I repented and hired him on the spot. I've been reflecting a lot on this whole topic, actually, this summer. For some reason, the Lord has put it on my heart. And particularly as regards to my ministry as your senior pastor. We have a large budget. We have a a large staff. And uh, frankly, it is common in larger churches for senior pastors to be kind of removed from the face-to-face ministry with hurting people. 
And the irony of that is, it was those very conversations that drew me into pastoral ministry in the first place. But you, you get separated out. And, uh, and I forget sometimes how much a phone call or a prayer can help a, a sick or a discouraged person from their pastor. And, and because we have such an amazing team of deacons, you know that, right? An amazing team of deacons who do such a great job of caring for and looking after and calling upon and ministering to our people. Oh, how I love our deacons. Because we have those, it's even easy, easier for me to become disconnected because it's all being covered. But I become troubled by this. I don't want to be an ivory tower pastor. I don't want to distance myself from the pain of my people. And so when I got back this summer, I set into place some, some, ch- some changes that will allow me to continue to connect with and pray for hurting people in this congregation. Now, I'm only one person. It's a large church. I can never replace the wonderful ministry of the deacons, nor do I want to. I can never replace your ministry to caring for one another, as you should be, and you do a great job of it. We are all called to care for one another. But when I hear the Holy Spirit saying, not so with you, Mark, this is my area of conviction. Now it's your turn. I wonder if every person in this room needs to do a bit of a personal inventory in this area because I think there's a little bit of James and John in all of us. A little bit of classist. A little bit of elitist. Most of us would prefer to be served, to be cared for, to be catered to, than to do the serving. And then we hear the Holy Spirit calling to us and saying, not so with you, Chapel Hill. You are different than that I want you to honestly ask yourself this question. Do I prefer to be served or serve? Do I prefer to be served or do I prefer to serve? I think one of the most challenging obstacles that we face as as a large church, and it's frankly an epidemic across the Christendom, is this, that it is our preference to be served. It is our preference to attend and to consume and to have our needs met. And it is not our preference to volunteer and to be involved and to solve problems. This week I sat with leaders from one of our important groups and they were so frustrated as they poured out their hearts to me saying, they cannot get anybody in their group to sign up. They cannot get anybody to help. It always falls to, to these same people and they are burned out. By the way, my suggestion to him was stop doing it. Stop doing it. See what happens. That was a very sensitive suggestion, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but it is. If you continue to abet the behavior, you get what you tolerate, right? Serve rather than be served, says Jesus. It may be the most countercultural message that we can declare. We live in a culture that exalts celebrity and enthrones its leaders. And we are easily seduced by all of that. And we may shake our heads at James and John's bald-faced power grab. But most of us would choose prestige and position and power given the choice. We may not want to be lorded over, but we don't mind doing a little lording. And then we hear the clarion call of Jesus. Not so with you. One of the most astounding things about Jesus' ministry is his humility. 
This is the incarnate Son of God here we're talking about. He had every reason to be served, and yet he came to serve. He had every reason to be exalted, and yet he lowered himself. We see it at the cross, but we saw it at the beginning of his earthly ministry, at his baptism too, remember? He comes to the waters of baptism, and when John the Baptist sees him, he says, Would you be baptized by me? No way, Jose, or something like that. He said, I rather would be baptized by you. And Jesus insisted. He presented himself. He lowered himself. He was taken beneath the waters of baptism to identify fully with a broken world. A broken world that didn't need another dictator. It needed a savior. When we baptize, it is obviously a time of joy and celebration, laughter, smiles. It is a time that we are reminded of the washing away of our sins because of Christ. It is a time when we are reminded of our rising from death to life as we are raised out of the waters, of the flooding of the Holy Spirit, of the identifying with the body of Christ. But baptism is also an act of cultural resistance. When you're baptized into Jesus, you are identifying with the one who had the right to exercise authority, but chose instead to lay down his life in service and in sacrifice. The world needs more servants like Jesus. And if this sounds refreshing to you, if this sounds like it speaks to your heart, if Jesus is the kind of servant leader that you want to follow, the kind of Savior that you want to know, These waters are for you. These waters are for you. Baptism is a humbling of oneself before the Lord and before God's people. And it is your chance to declare Jesus is the true Lord over all. I would invite you to confess this Jesus. He is worthy of your profession of faith. He is worthy to follow. And I invite you to declare that today. Would you pray with me, please? If this is a little bit new to you, if you have never prayed to follow Jesus, to receive his gift of salvation and forgiveness, even now you can do it. As you listen to the description of the one who had every right to be exalted and honored, but chose instead to serve and to die, if that beckons to you, that kind of power, that kind of of glory, that kind, then Jesus is the one that you need to declare. Even now, I'm I'm just going to pray a a little prayer, and I invite those of you who are here and have never prayed this prayer before, just quietly in the quietness of your heart to pray this prayer. Jesus, I recognize that I fall into the trap of this world. I want to be served. I want to be catered to. I want to be boss. And yet, I have not done a very good job of being my own boss. And I need a better Lord than me. So, Jesus, I surrender. I ask you to come into my life, into my heart. I ask you to take away my sins. I ask you to be the Lord of my life. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come in and clean me and empower me, fill me. Make me the person you created me to be. Holy Spirit, come. And I thank you for your invitation to one such as 
me to be a part of your family. Keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, invitation to Jesus to come, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, with every head bowed, every eye closed, raise your hand up. I want to see and I want to bless that decision. Anyone prayed that? Lord Jesus, you know these prayers. You know the hearts of those who lift up these words, and I pray that you would seal them and do something great. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.